All right, open your Bibles, if you have one, to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to read all 40 verses of it. I'm being ambitious today. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you in the back of the pew right there in front of you. You'll find this on page 776 or 816 of the Pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. And I'll ask somebody up top to turn on the house lights so we can see those Bibles. As I alluded to earlier, the series is called Beyond, if you're just joining us. And so there's so much else we could say in our study of the book of Acts. Um, But we're particularly interested as we go through this book and just observing and taking notice of the church living on mission in the first century, wherever we go. That's our particular um, interest. And so the title of this morning's message is Beyond Boundaries with the Gospel. And that has a double meaning to it because not only is the church called to take the gospel beyond boundaries, but in a different sense, the gospel takes us beyond our boundaries. That is, if we, if we understand really what we have received in the gospel, if we understand we were dead in trespasses and he made us alive, that we were far off and he brought us near, that we were aliens and strangers and he made us citizens, if we understand that, then the gospel will take us beyond boundaries so that we can take the gospel beyond boundaries. Those are personal boundaries that would hinder us from talking to people about Jesus and our relationship with him. There are personal boundaries we have that, that inhibit us in some ways in that regard. And there are also racial and cultural boundaries that prevent us from talking with some people much at all about anything. And so that's what we're going to look at today in uh, Acts chapter 8. It is, as I said, a long passage. There's a lot here, but we're going to read all of it. And so if you are able, um, as is our custom, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. If you're not able, you are certainly welcome to remain seated. But beginning in verse 1 of chapter 8, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution, that is Stephen's. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, 
They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to him Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go forward to the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch asked, uh, and the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we thank you as always for your word. We come to it with the belief that it is your word, that it is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce to the division of joint and marrow, soul and spirit, and able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we need that, Lord, for you to discern for us the thoughts and intentions of our own heart. You know, every need represented in this room and how we need your truth to speak to them today. So Lord, we open our ears and our hearts and we pray that you would speak, O oh Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people 
for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I'll mention and sort of in parentheses here before we even get started, you may have noticed as we're reading there um, that in the translation I read that we had on the screen, there was no verse 37. I don't know if you uh, picked up on that, but uh, if you're reading the ESV or the NIV, you see verse 37 footnoted. If you're reading out of the New American Standard, you'll see it in brackets. If you see, uh, if you've got the King James Version, it's just there, verse 37. And so um, that is, in, in a very shortest explanation, the uh, newer manuscripts of the New Testament include verse 37. The oldest manuscripts do not. And uh, so as, as sort of a general rule of Bible translation, the older, the closer a writing is to the events in which they're writing about, uh, the more authentic it's regarded to be. And so modern translations, you'll see, um, again, either footnote that or bracket it or whatever. Now, that, that, that raises more questions than it answers for you. I'm just going to leave you right there, and you can study that yourself on your own time, or we'll have a class to talk about that again another time. But I just wanted to uh, mention that. But we read last week about the preaching ministry of Stephen, that led to his execution by an angry mob, and that ignited an intense persecution that triggered these events we just read about. And Luke writes this chapter primarily to explain how the gospel spread outside of Jerusalem, initially in Judea and Samaria, just as Jesus foretold in Acts 1.8. You may recall there, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And here they go into Judea and Samaria because of this persecution that arose in Jerusalem. And as I alluded to earlier, there is so much that could be said about this passage. And one of the most difficult things in teaching or preaching from a larger passage like this is to decide what not to say. And um, so you may be disappointed at all the things I don't say as you read through here and look at all the richness of what could be said. But uh, there's a whole lot that will not be said. And so just in case I muddle the whole thing, let me just state up front to you the point that I'm trying to make so that at least if I don't make it at all, uh, you'll know what I was uh, attempting to make. It really comes in two parts, and that is, uh, in the first century church, all believers made it a priority to preach the gospel everywhere they went on a regular basis to whomever would listen. Okay, so that's sort of the first part of it. And the second part, that we must move beyond whatever boundaries would prevent us from doing the same thing. Okay, so the first century church, all of them made it a priority to preach the gospel wherever they went on a regular basis to anybody who would listen. And that we must do the same thing and move beyond whatever boundaries would inhibit us from doing the same thing. That's the point. Uh, and so I'll approach the message along those two lines. At first, by way of just a fairly broad stroke exposition of the text. And it is a very broad stroke. I want to look at the example set by the first century church. And then from their example, we'll identify some principles that can be applied to the 21st century church. And so let's look first at the example of the first century church. Here and, and notice again, the central theme here is the priority of gospel proclamation. That's, that's the primary purpose here. And so let's notice, just as we scan through the passage, we'll notice the, 
the who, the what, the where, the when, and the to whom of the preaching, okay? So first of all, the who, where, and when. Who, where, who does the preaching, where, and when? And the short answer is everybody, everywhere, all the time. Uh, I'll just offer the benediction now and we'll go home. <laughs> but look at verse 1 and then verse 4. It says, and Saul in verse one approved of his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And then down in verse four, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it says the apostles, all 12 of the apostles remained in Jerusalem. The rest of the church was scattered now, whether that was every individual or every segment of the church or whatever, I don't exactly know. We do know there was a church in Jerusalem um, that either people gravitated back there or some people had remained or whatever the case may be. But uh, in this case, the apostles remained in, in Jerusalem. Everybody else was scattered. And so this is the first explicit mention of lay people preaching the gospel. We've seen before it's always been the apostles preaching. And here now we have everybody scattered and all those who were scattered preached the gospel as they went. It's everyone's privilege and responsibility to tell others about Jesus, not just church leaders. Now, let me just say here, um, the point of this emphasis is not to make us feel guilty about not doing this, okay? Uh, about not telling people about Jesus. I, you know, I, I've shared, most of you know, I came out of a Southern Baptist background, as many of you did. And I remember somebody saying along the way, you know, the, the missions and evangelism are a big emphasis in Southern Baptist circles. And somebody said, you know, we're not any better at doing the work of personal evangelism. We just feel guiltier than everybody else about not doing it. And uh, so the, the point here is, is not to sort of lay that on us, uh, but it is everyone's privilege and responsibility to tell others about Jesus, not just church leaders. And we notice them preaching everywhere they went. I'm going to really gloss over this, but verses one and four that we just looked at said they, they preached throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Verse five says Philip preached in the city of Samaria. Now there was not a city called Samaria. This is a, a prominent city as opposed to just the villages throughout the region of Samaria. This is a city um, uh, an unnamed city of some prominence where Philip preaches. Down in verse 25, it says the apostles preached in the villages of Samaria as they passed on their way back to Jerusalem. Verse 26 says Philip preached on the desert road uh, between Jerusalem and Gaza. And then in verse 35, Philip preached in the towns that he passed through on his way from Azotus to Caesarea. So only one of those uh, places was a place that God said for somebody to go to. The, the desert road, an angel told Philip, arise and go down to this particular place where he encountered the Ethiopian eunuch. Otherwise, they simply preached where they were. Where they went and who they encountered, they, they talked to them about Jesus. And it would have been Fairly natural, I think, to do so, having come from Jerusalem into places where nobody knew them, it would beg the question, who are you and what are you doing here? And it gave them an occasion to explain why they were here and what they're all about. And the gospel was the reason that had brought them there. 
just wherever they were and whoever they encountered. What did they preach? And to whom? Well, verse four, again, this, descri- this says it in different ways, but what is it they're preaching? Verse four says they were preaching the word. Verse five says Philip preached the Christ. Verse 12 says Jesus, or uh, Philip uh, told them the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Verse 25 um, says the apostles were preaching the gospel. Verse 35, Philip told them the good news about Jesus. And verse 40 again says the gospel that Philip was preaching. Now, the word there for gospel and good news comes from the Greek word from which we get evangelism, evangelize, and evangelical. I've mentioned before, to be an evangelical Presbyterian church um, doesn't mean Republican. It doesn't mean, you know, um, the sort of right wing, you know, whatever. I mean, the, the, the kind of things that people associate it with. I think evangelicals is a voting block. It's not. Evangelical means we're gospel people. That's where the word comes from. And it looks like, in fact, where you see these, these phrases where it says they preached the good news or they told them the good news or preached the gospel, uh, you could literally say they evangelized them. That's the word there. We said before, um, when we were earlier in the book of Acts, where the apostles were preaching, we noticed that they were, were preaching a risen Messiah, the man Jesus Christ. He said, you killed him, God raised him up, and through him, we have forgiveness of sins. For those who believe in him, your sins can be blotted out. He said, you, remember, you may remember if you've been here throughout the series, that language. But we, in the context of that, sort of derived this definition, or actually uh, used the definition that Sam Storms is uses, used, which I like, and I'll repeat that again. But he says, the gospel is the good news of what God has accomplished through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in securing forgiveness of sins for all who would believe in him. It's important to remind ourselves forgiveness of sins entails more than just um, escaping punishment and so that one day we'll go to heaven. It is a restoration of a status uh, that we're reconciled to God, that we're made children and, and joint heirs with him, co-regents as we, uh, as we rule with Christ the King, whose will we seek to be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a fullness um, to it. And yet, the emphasis there, it is the good news, not good advice. It's good news about what God has done, not good advice about what you should do. And it's good news, not, not a good example. We don't just, like being nice and doing kind things is not the gospel, you may remember that. It is a proclamation of good news about what God has done. And that's what they were declaring everywhere they went. It was central um, to what they were all about. That was what they preached. And to whom, finally, did they preach it? Well, as I said, uh, to, to everybody who would listen, but... Luke makes special mention here of Samaritans and an Ethiopian eunuch. And, and the reason, I think, and this is prominent, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't even be able to miss that, right? I mean, there's more 
of the text here devoted to both this, the preaching to the Samaritans and this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch and everybody else. You'll notice he doesn't say anything about any preaching to Judeans, does he? It says they were scattered throughout the region of Judea. They preached everywhere they went. It doesn't mention anything special about that. And I think the reason for that is Samaritans and eunuchs would have been excluded from Jewish worship. And, and by the gospel, they are included in the family of God. And so let's consider for a moment who the Samaritans are and who the eunuch is. The, the really brief background on Samaritans um, is their, their origins are traced back to when the kingdom of Israel divided after the death of Solomon into a northern and southern kingdom. Ten of the 12 tribes went north and kind of set up a worship center up in the region of Samaria. They basically invented their own worship uh, in a place they came up with, on a day they came up with. They made idols, uh, you know, golden calves and this kind of thing. Just invented a system of worship. And the, and the southern kingdom considered them defectors and defilers of, of true worship. They end up later being captive, uh, taken captive by the Assyrians and carried off into captivity. They ceased to exist, That those 10 tribes. They were wiped out of history in that captivity. But there were some Jews who rem uh, remained in the area or, or else were allowed to go back, and the Assyrians repopulated that region primarily with people from other nations that, that they had conquered. And so the result is over the, over the centuries that followed, you have sort of a mixed race or mixed ethnicity of people there in Samaria. And they, and they did recover this kind of semblance of Jewish worship. They thought of themselves as worshiping the way the Jews did. But the, the, the Jews would have considered them um, impure ethnically and religiously. And they would not have regarded them as worshiping the same God or in the same way. In fact, John 4, 9 says that in sort of in, in parentheses there and as sort of a passing reference, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. That was, that was an explanation of Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't particularly care for the Jews either. In fact, in Luke 9, 52 and 53, says that one Samaritan village would not even receive Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So to say there was a deep dislike for one another is an understatement. And that helps explain why back in verse 14, when the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word, they sent people down to check that out. We need verification on the ground to see that this really happened. And so they sent Peter and John down and, and when they witnessed firsthand by the laying on of their hands, the receiving of the Holy Spirit, Peter and John themselves accepted them, if you will, and preached the gospel to other Samaritan villages as they headed back to Jerusalem. But it was a huge boundary. When you talk about going beyond boundaries with the gospel, this is a huge boundary. You know what, for me, this is a greater miracle 
than the healings of the lame and the blind and lepers and that kind of thing, that God, that God would break through the sinful hearts of masses of people and reconcile them to one another. Let's think about that in, you know, in our own context and not just in an abstract. But when you're born and raised with contempt for a certain group of people, you don't just decide one day you're not going to feel that way anymore. And even if you did, everybody else around you doesn't. God moved masses of people to be reconciled to one another. And the way the, the, way the Bible tells it, it just happened. I mean, it was, you know, for all intents and purposes, in a snap. There's a huge boundary to get beyond, and they did so by the grace and the power of God. And then we come to the eunuch. This man was reading the Jewish scriptures and returning from Jerusalem where it said he had gone to worship. But as a eunuch, he would not have been allowed full participation in Jewish worship. So he was in some sense a God-fearer and a believer, but he would never have been accepted entirely by the Jewish community. And so once again, the gospel was offered freely to this Ethiopian eunuch, a black man from a foreign nation who was a eunuch, becomes one of the first individuals we hear about as a convert. And so there's great significance here, not only in the fact that by his conversion, the, the gospel would travel all the way back to Ethiopia, but that in Christ, he would now be blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. As a eunuch desiring to, to participate in Jewish worship, he could enjoy some of the blessings. In Christ, he receives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ alongside everybody else. So the priority the church placed on preaching, the substance of what they preached and the boundless audience to whom they preached it, all signal a new day has dawned. That's what's being made clear here to the people throughout these regions. A new day is dawn. The kingdom of God has come and the call goes out to all peoples of the earth to become citizens of that kingdom. And they crossed geographic, cultural, ethnic, racial, and religious boundaries to offer the gospel to everyone. That's the example the first century church sets for us. And so what application does that have for us? Well, most of us have no problem acknowledging that we should introduce other people to Jesus. That's the church's mission, and it's our, again, privilege and responsibility as individuals. We mostly don't have a problem acknowledging that, but there are boundaries that keep us from actually doing it. And we need to move beyond um, our boundaries. There are probably many more than I'll mention, but I'm going to uh, highlight three things, I think, that inhibit us, this is sort of personal boundaries, or I'll call them, or internal ones, that inhibit us, prevent us from actually introducing other people to Jesus. The first is fear. 
I probably don't need to say anymore, do I? <laughs> it kind of explains itself because we identify with it. But you know, the first century Christians who fled Jerusalem in response to this great persecution, well, they had real reason to fear, didn't they? I mean, Saul is ravaging the church. The NIV says destroying. The King James says making havoc of. He is ravaging the church, literally dragging men and women out of houses and off to prison. I mean, we might be surprised to hear that the first thing they do as they're scattered is preach. But we certainly would forgive them if they decided to lay low for a while, wouldn't we? I mean, they wouldn't even have to give us an excuse. We would totally get why they might choose not to. But they didn't do that in spite of the risks. And there's much less at stake for us, but we still have fears of things like, what will people think of me? I mean, will, will, will people think I'm a weirdo or a Jesus freak if I, if I bring up Jesus in conversation? Am I going to ruin this friendship or this family relationship by talking about the things of God? Will they think I'm a bigot? Or that I'm judging them because I believe God and his word. Well, possibly yes to all of those things, by the way. But the longer we wait to talk openly about our faith, the more awkward it will seem to ever begin doing it. In a relationship, in other words. If we just keep our identity as a Christian, I'm not even talking about explaining the gospel and inviting them to respond to it. I'm just talking about talking openly about being a Christian. The longer we wait to do that in a relationship, the harder it becomes. And the more awkward it becomes because we've not introduced that as something very sort of central to who we are as a person. We talk freely about our family. That's, we don't have any problem with that. Very natural to do so, our work and so forth. If we've hidden the fact that we're believers, the longer we do that, uh, the more difficult it becomes. So we got to move past that boundary. Number two is a limited interaction with non-Christians. So the first boundary is fear. The second is limited interaction with non-Christian. I mean by that simply, many of us have few, if any, non-Christian friends. So let me, let me confess myself. I've worked in Christian ministry for a long time. I worked in Christian schooling for 17 years. Uh, as an administrator, both schools I worked at were church-related Christian schools. I was at church all the time. <laughs> now, all my life at church, all the people I knew were either part of a Christian school or part of church. I, I've lived right there where you look up and realize, wow, I... I hardly interact with anybody who doesn't at least profess to be Christian anymore. But that's true of many of us who don't have any non-Christian friends. And because of the general divisiveness in our culture, just around political and ideological issues, we may just intentionally limit any conversation with people who um, are not believers because, you know, we, 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 we feel like that's likely to bring up something controversial or whatever. We just, we're not even going to go there. In other words, we, we, many of us don't have any friends and others, the ones that we do who are non-Christians, we limit our interaction with them because of other sort of divisiveness in our culture. But one way or another, we've, we've got to broaden our circle here. This is, this is the point. That's a boundary we have to get beyond. I'll, I'll tell you another profound thought you can write down in your notes. Uh, it, if we're going to tell people about Jesus, we have to talk to them. <laughs> 
You can go, go ahead and jot that one down in the leaflet of your Bible. You know, you've got to have conversation in order to be able to tell them anything about Jesus. And if we don't have any people who aren't believers, who haven't heard the gospel in our circle, we got to expand our circle. That becomes one of the boundaries we've got to get beyond. And number three is a lack of empathy. Empathy just meaning feeling what other people fear, understanding and sharing the feelings of others. I'll, I'll read a quote here from an online article from the um, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and it says this, empathy is a key motivator for sharing the gospel. Empathy allows us to enter into the life of another person. Only in meaningful, heartfelt conversation do we begin to understand the joys and sorrows another person bears. If we're to combat this empathy crisis, we must purposefully, intentionally enter into the lives of others. We must renew our own wonder at the gospel of God's coming near in Jesus and how it changes everything. We must seek out meaningful conversation that opens space for people to share what's really happening in their lives. Let me read that last sentence again. We must seek out meaningful conversation that opens space for people to share what's really happening in their lives. Um, I've had a couple of conversations just in the last couple of weeks um, where, where two people for, you know, again, different, very different backgrounds and different reasons, but have, have just in the course of conversation explained um, reasons why from their background that they um, have either dislike or skepticism about the church. In other words, things that would, would keep them at a distance from, from the church or anything associated with the church. If you're, if you're always around Christian people, you really just don't even know. It, it made perfect sense hearing it from them. But it's meaningful conversation that opens space for that to happen. Those are our personal boundaries. But we also got to move beyond racial and cultural boundaries. This by itself could be a whole sermon, and I'm, I'm running long as it is, and I'm going to uh, sort of bring this to an end. But really, uh, this is a gross oversimplification. But as a starting point in identifying our racial and cultural boundaries, we could take the three personal boundaries I just mentioned and raise them to an exponential power. And then we would begin to understand what we're up against. In other words, we have a far greater degree of fear of talking with people of other racial or cultural backgrounds because we're not even sure we know what to talk about. It's not only a fear of talking about Jesus. We're not even sure we know how to have a conversation with somebody who just has totally different uh, cultural experiences than we do. We have a, a much greater degree of social disconnection for the same reason. So where, where I said we have few, if any, Christian friends, many of us could say the, say, say the same thing. Look around. We're a really white crowd in here. And, and, you know, most of us probably have very few, if any, um, my, racial minority friends in our circle, Christian or non-Christian. We just have less social connection uh, on which to cross, uh, by which to cross that boundary. And we have an immeasurably low degree of empathy. And I don't mean by that 
we, we don't care about people or we're unconcerned. But in terms of feeling what people feel, we don't feel what they feel because we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. We don't understand. And much of the time, it seems like we don't really want to understand. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned at Presbytery, we heard from a young pastor who's on staff at a church that set out intentionally to be a multicultural, multiracial, multigenerational church. They said, we're going to try to be the kind of church we expect to see in heaven, and we're going to do the hard work involved in worshiping together, communing together, and so forth, just doing life together. And he, he mentioned in the course of that just as some illustrations of the ways in which our culture is sharply divided among racial lines. Um, and uh, he, he used the example of things like, um, you know, you have from police shootings and this kind of thing, you've got black lives matter, and then the response is blue lives matter, or then all lives matter. President Obama was elected as the first black president, the black community, um, e even if disagreeing with him, as some individuals who disagreed with him in many ways ideologically, celebrated having sort of broken that glass ceiling, if it were, that, a, that a, an African-American man had been elected president. Um, and then there were some um, overtly, undeniably racist things uh, said and done, you know, about him. And so you, and you get people sort of taking sides along these lines was kind of the point that he was bringing up here. Um, that, that, in other words, the church has a response to these issues, and it is the gospel. What we, what we see is sharp division and people choosing a side and then firing volleys at each other over and over and over. And rather than the church speaking truth and speaking grace and redemption into those cultural situations and into those racial situations, what we have is individuals from the church choosing their side in this cultural civil war and firing shots at one another. And it was actually uh, a, a very convicting insight that he offered uh, to our whole presbytery. And there we are, right alongside the secular world, in those exchanges. But speaking of the union of Jew and Gentile, Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he himself, that is Christ himself, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That that's what Christ did on the cross. He reconciled Jew and Gentile. It's the way Samaritans and eunuchs could be invited into fellowship with one another. And it puts a challenge on the table for us. Why is it uh, we feel content having so many other brothers and sisters, believers um, in Jesus Christ of other racial and cultural backgrounds that we can't worship with together. It's not that we would say we have any disdain or dislike or hatred toward. But could we acknowledge there must be some boundary there? 
that prevents the church from, uh, from getting beyond that. As people have observed the church, Sunday morning is the most segregated um, hour of the week in American culture. And brothers and sisters, that should not be so. There's a boundary there. There's a boundary there that we have to get beyond. I believe God, God has been gracious to our nation recently, and I don't mean just in this way, but in all kinds of ways. He is revealing the sins of our heart. All of this sexual abuse and, and, um, and misconduct and all that kind of stuff that's coming to the surface, even in the church, that is an act of the grace of God to show us the sin that needs to be dealt with. And the same is true with some of the racial, racial animosity that still exists, even among the body of Christ. And it is one we will have to finally reckon with or finally be wrecked by it. And so what can we do? How do we respond to that? Well, I'd say just three quick things. Number one, that we can begin to try to reach out and begin conversations with people. Just begin having conversations with people who aren't already in our circle. Begin in small ways, just having small talk. You might consider just being honest um, and saying things like, this, I really believe this would be refreshing for people to hear. If you wanted to just engage in conversation with, say, an unbeliever, that you get to a point in a conversation where you say, you know what, it's really, I've realized recently, you know, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and it, it's just dawned on me the majority of my relationships are with other Christians. And I really don't. Um, I really don't know how non-Christians think about certain things. Like I just, I've just dawned on me and I really would like to understand better about how somebody who comes from a different worldview perspective would think about these issues. Maybe, would you mind we could, if we had coffee sometime maybe? I'd just love to hear your viewpoint on that. You know, people love to tell you their viewpoint. <laughs> anyway, and they would love to do it in a context where you've agreed at the outset you, that you disagree but you're not going to shout at each other about it. I think that would be refreshing. I believe you could have a conversation. And then, but the third thing is, listen and try to understand. I actually try to understand where other people are coming from rather than while they're talking, you think about what your rebuttal is going to be. Because again, isn't this the way our social dialogue goes in these days? You take your position, I take my position. We fired each other. And, and hold your fire and listen and try to actually understand. You know, as a rule, until you can restate somebody else's position in a way they would agree with, in a way that would be honoring to them, you probably don't totally understand their position. Now that's the goal, in other words, listen well enough so you can say what they're saying the way they would say it. Not because you agree with it, but just because you understand it. And I, and I believe if we can begin to engage that way with people of other worldviews, non-believers, other uh, people of other racial and cultural backgrounds, whether, um, whether Christian or not Christian, that we can begin to get beyond some boundaries because we've allowed the gospel to take us beyond our boundary. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, as we acknowledged earlier, there's, there's so much here 
uh, that could be said and a whole lot that I have said. And it's, it's a lot to think about and a lot to digest. But Lord, we just lay bare before you the acknowledgement on our part. We, we accept gladly the responsibility and privilege we have of telling people about Jesus. Our life is entirely different than it otherwise would have been because we know him, because you searched us out as the lost sheep and you found us and you brought us back into the fold. Lord, our lives are entirely different because of that fact. We recognize what a privilege it is to tell other people about that, and yet there are all kinds of boundaries that hinder us from doing so. Lord, would you just begin to give us a different perspective on the culture we're in and a heart that longs to see people who are lost, found and reconciled to you, people who are themselves far off, brought near. And Lord, we long to see even professing believers who share a faith in common, but otherwise share almost nothing about their lives together. We long for those boundaries to be broken down, Lord. We recognize consciously or unconsciously, wittingly, unwittingly, that though Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility, we build it up over and over and over again. Lord, would you tear it down in our hearts and in our lives and in the cultural life of our church and churches once and for all for the glory of your name, for the good of your people so that the gospel can be proclaimed freely, truly throughout the, throughout the planet and see all nations worship the one true God. Thank you and praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.